So with that, we'll, we'll kick off, should we, Easy? Yeah, yeah. So uh, good, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Taking Stock After the Bell, episode 19. Um, we are delighted to be joined today by James Ashley. Thank you, James, for joining us. Great pleasure. Good morning. Um, James is Managing Director in the Client Solutions Group within Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Uh, he leads the International Strategic Advisory Solutions Team, providing clients across EMEA and Asia-Pacific with expertise on market trends, portfolio construction and innovative business practices. We're hoping to hear a bit about that today. Uh, James joined Goldman Sachs in 2015, uh, having began his career at the Bank of England before moving into the private sector. Um, second uh, Bank of England alumnus that we've had on the podcast, in fact, I believe. Mm. Uh, prior to joining the firm, he was Chief European Economist at Royal Bank of Canada. Uh, two decades of experience working across buy-side, sell-side, policy-making institutions, uh, BA in Economics from Durham University and an MSc in Economics from University College London and an MA in International Relations from King's College London. So congratulations on all of those. <laughs> Thank you. And welcome. And today Sounds very pleasure. impressive. I was enjoying uh, listening to the intro. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a short version of all that is, I talk macro markets. There you mm. go. That's that's what we do. <laughs> so how is how is the mood in, in markets and generally with clients? What do you what do you sort of because obviously our, our client base is probably a bit different to yours. Mm. Generally, retail clients and, and individuals. So you know what are you what are you hearing from from the people you speak to? Daily? The general sense is that we're reaching a point of inflection. Whether that comes to central banks, the conversations around recession risk and politics and geopolitics that. Um, you see clear evidence that tensions there are rising. And if we look ahead to next year, you can see a number of major political events on the horizon. Mm -hmm. So the concerns that have been top of mind for many of our clients over the past couple of years, they're still there, but it feels like there's a fresh set of concerns and difficulties that we're going to have to navigate. Um, I also think that when we think about rotation of styles and geographies, there are questions now around the outlook for China. For the past 20 years, we've been seeing China as the engine of global Mm -hmm. growth. Um, that's beginning to stutter a little bit. And the mm. question is, is that temporary? Is it structural? How does that play out? And then the question, of course, about long-term prospects is, what do we think about climate change? What do we think about AI and those structural changes and how they're going to play out? So there's a lot for clients to contend with. Um, lots of risks, but also I would want to emphasize lots of opportunities that go alongside those as mm. well. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think what we hear from a lot from clients is that the, the outlook's very uncertain and things feel very uncertain now. If I guess if I had a penny every time I've heard that in my career, which probably isn't as long as yours or, or even Hughesy's over there, um, you know, we'd be pretty rich by now. The, the outlook is, by definition, kind of almost always uncertain, right? But do we think yeah, now is a, a, is especially so? Um, I think it is. I, I, th- I think we've come through a period where, for the past fifteen years, maybe longer, our thesis is we've been somewhat spoiled. Mm. That we've had a situation where central banks since the global financial crisis have been doing extraordinary things, negative Mm. interest rates, quantitative easing, forward guidance, all of which mean that you've been able to take risk with not certainty, but a great deal of comfort that rates would remain low for a long period of time. So maybe you lever up on the back of that. Your downside is somewhat limited. Mm. And now we go into a situation where the economic landscape has changed in a profound way. Central banks have tightened policy aggressively. And I don't think we're going back to the world that we've been in. So we now need to recalibrate. So that world of easy credit, abundant liquidity that's supported the rally in equity markets, supported spread compression in credit markets, that's gone. At the same point in time that geopolitical risk premium is starting to decompress. So our our argument is more that we're going back to a more normal normal environment. What we've been through for 15 years is 
abnormal and it's supported a risk on trade over that period of time mm. now we go back to a world in which you've got to be a bit more thoughtful and a bit more nimble when it comes to asset allocation mm. Mm. Yeah, we, so, we sort of wished for a lot of the last 10 years has been spent saying how do we get back to a more normal world yeah. and actually we'd love to get back there be careful what you wish for yeah, yeah. well and, and that's sort of my question because we we have you know we are getting back there we've got <clears throat> higher inflation you know rates your savers are being rewarded um for lending their money which they should be mm. um it's and in terms of there, ha there has obviously been some pain in certain areas of the market you know the long end of gilts or treasuries and yeah. certain parts of equities but actually I think a few years ago, if we'd sat here and said rates are going to go to five and a quarter mm. in the UK, 100%. we'd have all said the world is going to blow up. Yep. We cannot afford right. that debt. We can't afford the interest payments. And, and you look at the Fed interest payments and they are quite scary. But ultimately, the world hasn't fallen over. Do you think this is, this is quite healthy that we're going back to almost the old world? I think to some extent, yeah, in a world where you have, the phrase I just used before was limited downside. It's not a world of one direction. They're working up mm. ups and downs along the way. But in a world in which central banks are saying rates will remain very low for a long period of time, there's risk taking that isn't mm -hmm. entirely healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for investors to realize that there's a two-way mm. trade here, mm. I think encourages investment discipline. And you get a better allocation of capital in the economy as well, not just for investors, but you're thinking, you know, should we be undertaking this marginal investment project? Should we be undertaking this construction of an office block or a hotel? Mm. You start to think in a way of what's the return on this project rather than it's almost costless. Yeah, and you, you have had, you know, private equity can be pointed to for backing projects because debt is so cheap and essentially saying, I don't care if it makes money, I just want to eat market share and we'll knock out the competition. And actually some very good businesses have suffered as a result. So, mm -hmm. you know, potentially if that falls away and people start acting more rationally, then as investors, yeah. it might be quite positive for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, interesting. Would, would Amazon have survived the last 15 years? Because they have been yeah. the, the vanguard of the let's take market share, let's not make any yeah. profits, let's keep yeah. our prices as low as possible in a in a higher rate environment where investors are now demanding a return. And, and you know, from a stocks perspective, I'm not going to get into it, but Uber were one of the first last year to the chief exec came out and say, right, we're no longer chasing mm. market share, we're now chasing free cash flow. And there was a sort of sea change, particularly in you know those parts of tech. But it's quite interesting to think about whether Amazon would have survived the last 15 years of 5% rates. So then if you broaden that out and you say, forget the individual names, but just think about portfolio construction more generally, the strategies that you would have successfully deployed over the past 15 years would probably look very different to what success over the next 15 mm. years looked like mm. in a world in which yeah. geopolitical landscapes, the inflation landscape, the rate landscape looks different. Why would you assume that what was successful in the past is going to be successful in the future. Mm. So you, I'm not saying we run away from 60-40, but you need to think what goes into each of those 60-40 buckets and how do we rebalance things at the margin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if we um, if we come back and look at the short term, mm. I mean, markets you know, had a really good week last week and had a really good two or three weeks, haven't we? And, and, and what sort of, well, it wasn't really the set the tone, but we had um, the uh, monthly US jobs report uh, on Friday, which is the highlight of our monthly calendar, isn't it? <laughs> and... Um, 
you know, if you were Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve, you'd have been really pleased with this, wouldn't you? So the yeah. the monthly jobs figure came in slightly weaker than expected. Wage growth came in, which is the bottom, um, the bars here, you can see. And we can see actually how those payroll numbers have decelerated quite rapidly from the peaks in 2021. And the unemployment rate, which is the top line here, has ticked up from, well, it's gone from about 3.5 to 3.9, isn't it? So broad evidence of labour market softening, which is good news, right? Yeah, but we're in this perverse world where good news is bad news and bad news is good news. So ordinarily, if I'm an equity investor, I want to see an economy that's doing well, generating strong earnings potential, and that's good news, so that's a risk on trade. Mm. What we're now seeing is a market that behaves in a way that says where we have a moderation of activity, where things look as though they're weakening, that means the Fed isn't going to tighten any further, and that's good news. So so actually, weak economic data is fueling a risk on rally. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the appropriate way to interpret the data. So yeah. from the Fed's perspective, things are moving in the right direction. But is the market understanding the implications for what it means for equities? I'm not sure entirely. Mm. Mm. That's fair. And, and and it all comes back to this chart here, which, you know, every time I look at inflation in the UK, US and Eurozone over the last 30 years, kind of mind is just a bit blown at that peak that we've mm. seen. And that, that, you know, but it's coming down as quickly as it went up. Right. And, and that's almost had you told anybody um, they wouldn't have believed you that we would go to 10% and, and be coming back down at pretty much the same trajectory that we went up at. I think that's true. The What I would argue is that the slide that we're looking at right there is showing us the, the easy bit of disinflation. Mm. This mm. is base effects where the price changes we've seen over the past 18 months are simply not being repeated. Yeah. So by mathematics, the inflation rate moderates. If you're looking at things like wage inflation, underlying gauges of domestically generated inflation, they're looking a little bit stickier. Yeah. I'm not saying they're being intransigent. You are seeing some moderation there. But the necessity that central banks have before they begin to think about reversing course and taking rates down is that you need to see a broad-based, significant, sustained moderation. Mm. Well, that broad-based criterion means that it's not just about is the headline coming down it's what about the broader range of inflation yeah. gauges and there's a long way to go so the key message there from a fred's perspective is this is encouraging things are going in the right direction but it's far too premature to say that we're about to pivot mm. it may even be premature to say we've peaked in mm. all likelihood i think they have um, but the moment where you go from a conversation around peak rates to taking them back down to so the pivot i think there's a significant lag between those two mm. yeah and and we've got um, another chart up here on on what the market is pricing for bank of england and fed rates and this was at the 31st of october so this was just before payrolls it's not changed hugely i mean those those lines have come down a little bit but you know Essentially, the market's kind of unsure, right? Well, uh, mm. That's what that tells me. Yes, yeah. the market is pricing basically no cuts or rate rises for the next 12 months or so, possibly at the end of next year. But we're, you know, I also look at this chart and think, well, half market participants think rates are going to be higher than that, and right. half think it's going to be lower. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's just sort of bits fence sitting, isn't it? Yeah, and I think some of this comes down to the going back to the inflation question. What's the nature of inflation that we're seeing? The debate over the past couple of years has really centered around is it transitory? Or is it persistent? Well, Team Transitory got carried out on a stretch. It was obviously much more persistent than anybody who was in the first camp. Our assessment, though, is as well as that persistent cyclical inflation, there's also an underlying structural dimension. So getting headline inflation down to 4%, getting it down to 3%, that's relatively easy to achieve. 
it's required significant tightening from central banks, but to get down to the kind of three sort of number is doable. To get that final closure down to 2% is going to require tight policy for some considerable time because of those structural inflationary pressures that happen to coincide with these cyclical dislocations around mm. COVID, around the Ukraine war and so on, that have faded into the background because all the headlines have been about things like COVID, things like war, but they're there. And that, that's going to mean that getting to 2% is going to be quite a tall order. Mm. Do, do you think they cut before inflation falls below 3 do you, Or do you think they, they don't change the inflation target, but the economy might Implicitly change it. Yeah. So there's a couple of pieces there. One is to say, look, central banks are inherently forward-looking. Mm. Um, so they're supposed to be saying, well, where is inflation in two years' time? We know monetary policy feeds through with the long lags. Mm. Central banks can do very little about inflation over the next three or six months. What we care about is where is it going to be in two years' time? Yeah. So if you've got an inflation print that's over three, but you believe in two years' time it's going to be below two, then yeah, you you just mm. policy accordingly. That's the normal state of affairs. I think central banks have been so scarred by recent experience that they're no longer just thinking about what's the most likely path for inflation. It's one of the risks around that. Mm. And the risks are that given how far inflation has moved away from 2%, they start to worry about second round effects. What if you have wage price dynamics? What if you have certain components of the inflation basket that because of where inflation is today, will re-rate higher next year and the year after? So I think their willingness to adjust policy back down to more normal levels while inflation is above 3%, it's going to be very, very limited. So ordinarily, I'd answer your question and say that, yeah, there's no yeah. restriction there. Inflation above 3 is fine if you believe it's going down to 2 but I think there's an asymmetry in terms of how they behave. Now, the second bit to your question, do they change inflation targets? This is something we've been wrestling with for a long time. Mm. And there's a strong question about, is inflation at 2% the appropriate benchmark for the world today? Remember, inflation targets of 2 were set up 25 years yeah. ago, and the world looked very, very different then. There is, however, a cost um, to moving away from that. The cost is one of predictability and transparency, and inflation is inherently costly. So you, mm. Do you want to structurally introduce more inflation to the system? So there's an open question there. Um, the, the counter to that is to say, look, in order to get inflation down to 2%, you're going to have to have nominal rates at far higher levels than they have been over the past 20 years. I'll be comfortable with the costs associated with that. So it's, I think there are arguments on both sides of that. Our, our assessment is that you may just see, to, to your point, JR, that mm. we may just see central banks not formally changing their targets, but implicitly having a bias towards mm. inflation running a little bit over 2% mm. rather than treating it as a symmetric target. Mm. Well, I mean, we have to That's sort really of st take a step back and say inflation is inherently volatile, mm. and there are so many inputs into what causes inflation, and central banks have a very, very blunt tool with which to control it. Now, you know, if we come back to the kind of long-term chart on inflation here, and, and you, you mentioned that there's a structural dimension to inflation, mm. which perhaps has been absent, I would contend, and I don't know if you agree, but central banks, yeah, sure, their framework and their, um, they always talk about, what do they talk about? Um, central banks having credibility. Yeah. That's a big word they've used for the last 30 years. You know, I would kind of argue they just got lucky. China entering WTO <laughs> and did, globalization, yeah. demographics, technology and the internet, you know, have been huge disinflationary forces. Do you want to sort of talk a bit about, you know, you mentioned that structural dimension to inflation and, and how maybe the next 30 years doesn't look like that? Yeah. So look, let's be clear. The past 
15, 20 years um, have been characterised by all sorts of unusual phenomena, one of which, of course, is the legacy of the global financial crisis. But it's also been about China integrating into the global trading system. It's mm. been about favourable demographics, things that are unrelated to the GFC. Mm. Our contention is that if you look ahead, a lot of those factors will not just fade away, they will become active inflationary headwinds. I want to be very clear, we're not saying everything suddenly becomes inflationary in nature. And the obvious count is going to be technology and artificial intelligence, which mm -hmm. I think will be disinflationary over a long period of time. But if you take things like decarbonisation, mm -hmm. climate change 10, 15 years ago was perhaps something that policymakers could think of as being a problem for future generations. Mm -hmm. It's present now. It's something that we're having to deal with. And it's become not just a, a structure, just, it's, not, it's not just a structural issue. It's a security issue as well. Ukraine's taught us that. So the imperative of moving away from hydrocarbons to something that's more renewable in nature, I think has become a clear imperative, but there's a clear cost associated with that. So the age of cheap energy has, has gone. The age of cheap labor has also, I think, become more challenging. So if you go back 15 or 20 years, yeah. European or US companies might have just outsourced, outsourced. production to yeah, China. Exactly. Well, Chinese unit labor costs have increased substantially mm -hmm. over that period of time, which is a good news story. That, that's, that's hundreds of millions of Chinese people being lifted out of poverty to middle income status. But from an inflation perspective, it's just inflationary rather than disinflationary. Mm -hmm. And you put that in conjunction with the lessons from COVID, which has been about diversification of supply chains. Maybe you overlay with that some concerns about geopolitical risk and the potential for a trade war between the US and China. And suddenly you start to think about, well, maybe we need to move away from the model that we've been following to something that is more diffuse in nature. That's fine. That might make sense for each individual corporate to do it. But economically, that becomes an inflationary impulse. Mm -hmm. And then the final, perhaps the, the most forceful inflationary impulse is demographics where for 70 years after the second world war we had these constantly expanding working age populations so yeah. more labor i think is a, is a disinflationary force mm -hmm. so now we start to see demographics in germany in italy in china in japan turning negative at the same time so you have fewer workers that's a big hit to the supply side of the economy demand may weaken on the back of that as well but supply gets hit harder by the very definition of what retirement means all of these things combining mean that the disinflationary forces of the past 15 20 years now become inflationary which brings us back to the question of how do you characterize inflation sure as heck isn't transitory there's a large element of it which is persistent cyclical in other words but there's a bit of it which is structural in nature mm. so to get to a three percent inflation print is about the cycle to get to two percent is about the structural factors mm. and central banks to use your phrase, they're, they're credible, but they're not omnipotent. You know, mm. there are limits to their power, and we've found that over the past fifteen years. That if if you believe in, the, if you believe that credibility is everything, and nobody's saying that, but if you believe that credibility is mm. everything, well, why in the twenty tens did we fail to get inflation up to two percent? Yeah. Because it's not everything. Yeah. Yeah. Macro forces really matter. Mm. Just think, on the point about demographics, sorry, Izzy. Mm. Um, I don't. I remember not that long ago everyone decided that aging populations were deflationary because they looked at Japan and went, well, they've had 30 years of deflation, therefore they've got an aging population, put two and two together, make five. But it seems to be that story has changed. What, what, what's A, the story with China, or uh, with Japan, sorry, has yeah. it changed? And, and what's the sort of new thinking? 
So our, our story's never been that it's been, um, aging societies have been disinflationary. I think you're right, the, the popular narrative may have been changing, mm. but I think in some ways that's a misdiagnosis of what's been going on in Japan. If yeah. you look at Japan's population, it peaked in 2009. Mm -hmm. What Japan had from 1990 onwards was 20 years of a, of a balance sheet recession where you had real estate prices that had just got to absurd levels mm. and you had to have this recalibration taking out some of the excesses in the economy. Now, for the past 10, 12, 13 years, there's been a demographic story to Japan as well, but the demographic experience of Japan has not been the dominant story. That's been about the balance sheets, about excesses. And we see some of that in China. So we can talk about China perhaps in a few moments where you have this unfortunate combination where China's demographic inversion does coincide with a balance sheet mm. recession in the real estate sector. So in some ways, the problems that China faces right now are more challenging than the experience that Japan, Japan went through. But on the demographic side of things, just going back to the Japan experience, Demographics in Japan have not been the dominant story. We look to where we think we're going in the future. Our assessment is simply when people, this is very simplistic, but the, kind of the, the core of what we're arguing is to say when people retire, by definition, they stop working. Mm -hmm. The supply side mm -hmm. goes to zero. That's the def You can do semi-retirement, fine, but you can, actual retirement, the supply side goes to zero. But consumption, the demand side, it may moderate, it may drop a bit, but, but yeah. it's not going to, I mean, people yeah. still consume, right? They, they need food, they need shelter, they need clothing, they need all sorts of things. So you may see some moderation, but demand doesn't take as big a hit as supply, and therefore that's a positive inflationary impulse. And of course, the other thing with Japan is that the Japan difficulties, whether you believe the balance sheet story or you still think there's a demographic element to it, that happened to occur where the rest of the world was actually doing okay. You know, you had this Mervyn King's nice decade yeah. in the 1990s, the non-inflationary, non consistently cons expansion. Consistent expansion yeah, you had, you know, the, the rest of the world was doing okay. So you had this rising tide lifting all ships. Well, mm. now what we're talking about, I've mentioned, it's not just China and Japan. You see demographics in Germany and Italy and many other economies going into reverse at the same point in time. So it's this confluence of factors that <clears> I think mean we're heading into a more difficult situation. Mm. And then do you want to touch on kind of China and how that, what Japan tells us about what we think might happen in China, but I'm not going to hold you to this, by the way. But um, <laughs> you know, how do you, you see that panning out? Because yes, they've got a property bubble which is yeah. potentially unwinding. They do have a lot more kind of control from the centre, yeah. and you could probably argue that the bubble in property probably wasn't obscene as Japan in eighty nine ninety. Yeah, um, and they definitely didn't have a stock market bubble to anywhere near the same degree. I mean, would you be kind of cautiously bearish on China? economy-wise for the next 10, 15, 50 years, given the demographics and balance sheets? or I, th I think in the short term, there's an argument for being cautiously constructive, actually. Let me go kind of even further in this. So I was in the region um, just a couple of weeks ago, and the, the feedback from investors out there um, were that China is um, at rock bottom, everybody's lost hope. These are direct quotes from people that we're speaking mm. with. Now, when I hear things like that, it says there's an underlying serious cause for concern but if you yeah. genuinely believe you're at rock bottom then there's an asymmetry there's kind of there's there's more upside than there is downside so i need to get comfortable with the fundamentals before i mm. invest on that basis but i do think the re-rating and valuations that we've seen has been so dramatic it creates some interesting upside mm. so in the short term i think there is a case for saying increased china exposure 
if you're taking a longer term perspective, then those demographic imbalances, the issues around local government financing, corporate debt levels, real estates, all of which are intertwined to some extent. Governance. Absolutely. All of it, I think, means we should be anticipating more moderate growth rates in China. Mm. So if you go back 10 or 15 years, China's growing at 10, 13, 14%. On a forward basis, we should be anticipating China growing at 4 or 5%. Mm. Now, it's a heck of a lot larger now than it was back then. Yeah, so, so 4% the, yeah. of a bigger economy. So the amount of pounds 30%. or dollars it's yeah, creating yeah, yeah, yeah. is more significant. And people now. forget that, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it's really important to, to recognize that. But I do think that those problems that we see in China are going to limit growth potential on a long-term basis. Mm. So, yeah, sure, there are opportunities there. And look, China, on some measures of GDP, is now 20% of the global economy. So it's not a question of do you invest in China. A well-balanced, diversified portfolio needs to invest in China, just given its size. Mm. The question is how do you invest? Is it equities, credit, rates? Yeah. How much risk do you want to take there? Um, but we need to do so with our eyes wide open, understanding that the growth rates we've seen are not going to be the growth rates that we see in the future. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I, I, yeah. What sort of valuation discount would you put on a long run basis for Chinese equities versus the rest of the world? Because I mean, I, I do get worried about property rights, governance, you know, mm. Jack Ma, and, and, a, and a few kind of things like that. I just sort of, there should be a discount to global equities, right? Assuming growth is relatively similar, but I, think, I don't know what the right answer is. I think there's some, 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 some validity to that where we think about governance uncertainty, political uncertainty. Um, all I would argue when it comes to politics, though, more generally, just to broaden this out, is to say that there's increasing political risk in many parts of the world. So when we think about the past 15 years, it's been characterised by limited political and geopolitical uncertainty. And now we're in a situation where I don't think anybody would plausibly make that statement. So China certainly has issues that um, investors need to be aware of in that dimension. But I would argue that the same applies for most other regions right now. Mm. Just while we're in that neck of the woods, if we think about Asian exposure more generally, the one area where I see geopolitical calm on a relative basis would be Japan. So if we're thinking about the situation of where would we take exposure right now, given the conversation we're having is Asia-focused at this point in time, I would argue that Japan is the one economy where you see supportive monetary policy. It's the one central bank that hasn't tightened considerably. You've got very limited political risk at this point in time. And you've got a story where I think inflation in the rest of the world is a problem. In Japan, it's a solution. Yeah. You, know, for, you were saying you know, Japan's had 30 years of difficulties yeah. for whatever reasons, whatever nature you think they are, but 30 years where inflation has not been present and suddenly inflation is back. That boosts long-term nominal GDP mm -hmm. outlooks. So in a situation where the BOJ is not going to move forcefully to curtail that, I think that's probably a positive from a Japanese equity perspective. Yeah, I always think about the uh, a sort of much more kind of simple kind of thesis about it in 1990 at the top of the boom basically in the last 30 years you've had balance sheet unwinding corporations you know um deleveraging essentially and mm. if you think about the demographics of people now running those businesses if you think about someone coming through into kind of senior management in their 50s they probably the 1990 blow up is probably now in far enough in the rearview mirror yeah. whereas senior leaders who are maybe in their 60s they remember it vividly right. so you're going to the next 10 years those people who remember it vividly because they were there are kind of falling right. off. Yeah. And I liken it yeah. to, there was a hedge fund in the US, I can't remember who it was, but in 1980, someone thought that after a terrible decade in markets that the um, better times were coming. They basically got rid of all the old guard who were you know, structurally bearish because they'd been 10 years of being punched mm. in the face. And they got in a load of new kids who 
were ignorant to the recent history who could take the risk. And yeah. I sort of think with Japan, there's an element of that kind of human, um, you know, dynamism that might be coming through from kind mm. of today's and tomorrow's leaders that yeah. might well see growth rather than just retrenchment. Yeah, and I think the, the, the optimal blend is probably a mix of the two. You want people who have long understanding of financial markets and the corporate landscape so they've learned the lessons of history but also people with fresh ideas and fresh approaches who aren't kind of stagnating based on where things have historically been and therefore they'll always be in the future you want to blend the two together that's yeah. that's how you achieve success yeah no definitely and then yeah i mean we've talked a bit about inflation and, and how that might be stickier i mean what, what are your sort of views on how ai plays into that kind of a macro theme because the internet 20 years ago was clearly yeah clearly in hindsight um a positive disinflationary force does ai play the same theme i, I think it to does a greater degree or yes yeah, so I, th- I certainly think ai is more important than the internet when it comes to inflation so if i think about the, the internet it's for many of us kind of we're sat here in center of london we deal in financial services and the internet has been transformational mm. just the, the amount of email traffic that we get and the, the, the ease of communication but it's not, it's not transformational <laughs> whether it's good or bad it's, it's transformational yeah. um but there are many occupations where you say the internet didn't have much of an impact mm. you know how did it affect a bin man's job how did it mm. affect a, a surgeon's job i mean maybe at the margin but it's not transformational if you think about ai i think there's going to be few corners of the economy that are not touched by this the question is one of timing. Um, when does it? When do we get to the point where not only the technology is capable of transforming the economic landscape, but from a regulatory perspective, we're comfortable with it? So, if we think about this from a self-driving vehicle perspective, anybody who's been in, say, a Tesla or something of that kind, the, the technology pretty much works. It works ninety-nine percent of the mm. time. Problem is, it's not a hundred percent, and therefore, from the DVLA's perspective, from an insurer's perspective, yeah, that one percent yeah. is a bit of a problem. So, yeah. the the productivity enhancements, the inflationary impact that you might see from us being able to read a newspaper or get on top of our emails while we're having the car drive for us, you can't achieve that right now because even if the technology is almost there, from a regulatory perspective, we're not ready to roll it out. Mm. So, I think AI will be economically transformational. But when that will happen, I've got very limited confidence in making any predictions on that. You know, I, th- I think that's fair. I'm sort of hopeful that kind of Microsoft Copilot saves me 25% of my time and like moving stuff around from one place and my computer yeah. to another place. And I, I'd, anyway, let's hope that we, we kind of get there kind of sometime soon. Um, I think one of the kind of really interesting things, the good news stories that we've been talking to clients about, and clients have not had a great 18 months by any stretch, is this kind of idea of, safe yield so it's 10 year government bond yields UK in blue US in red Germany and Japan Japan's a bit of an outlier is it in green but Mm -hmm. going the right way Um, and I've come back to what Heasy said earlier had you told me yields were going from naught to four and a half in the UK in the space of two years I might have said that there might have been more trouble than we've actually had Mm -hmm. but um, you know this is a really good news story and if credit spreads are 100 150 basis points over this you know you're getting 6% on investment grade corporate bonds yeah um it's good news, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, the, so the, the how we've been rotating <coughs> our uh, allocations has been um, saying increased exposure to fixed income, increased exposure to bonds. The question then is how you do that, how much risk do you want to take? So in the credit space, do you go looking for the highest possible yields to go into the high yield space? Or do you say, look, I'll take some credit exposure, but I prefer to play it safe and go to investment grade? Mm. In the government bond space, do you increase your duration, so your interest rate mm. sensitivity, or do you play it short? Our assessment up until now, up until very recently, has been to have a bias towards short duration, mm-hmm. thinking that the market hasn't fully digested 
what higher for longer means. It hasn't fully digested yeah. what the removal of price-insensitive buyers of government bonds, in other words, central banks, yeah. who've now become sellers of government bonds, what does that mean for the demand base? So there's increased supply, so deficits are very, very large, yeah. there's reduced demand, and we're in a world of higher for longer, given the strength of the economy that we've seen so far. Yeah, so we've, we've stayed... Chart on uh, debt to GDP here right. in the UK and US, and it's fair to say it's, uh, it's going up. Absolutely, yeah. And <laughs> it's not. And, and it, it's. I don't think it's going to be coming down anytime soon when we think about the financing needs of, you know, security issues, defence, ageing society, health and social care that's going to be required. The ability to bring that back down to more familiar levels is going to be very, very challenging. But if you put all this together, I think it means we are in a world of probably high in nominal interest rates, not mm -hmm. because of just those structural inflationary forces that we mm -hmm. talked about before, but the, the other elements that we've, we've just touched upon. So fiscal dynamics, the supply base, and so on. So we've been short duration. When you see the US 10-year hitting 5%, as it did just a couple of weeks ago, that for us looks as though it's gone beyond fair value. So that's where we say, okay, start to add a bit of duration back to portfolios. So we've been moving in that direction recently. On the credit side, we've had this bias towards investment grade mm. rather than high yield. And this comes back to a story that I, th I think we probably need to just touch upon, that the recessionary risks that we see in the US and Europe, we think are possibly greater than the market is anticipating. So we've mm -hmm. talked about higher for longer, the resilience of the economy. Yeah. I mentioned earlier kind of potential upside in China, at least in the short term. But we do need to counterbalance this and just say, look, there are clear signs of a deceleration in Europe and indeed in the US right now. And we're not saying there's going to be some deep protracted recession. What we're saying is that there's perhaps a bit more downside than the market is mm. anticipating. You can still invest in that environment, mm. but you want to maintain some discipline when it comes to risk exposure. So for credit markets, IG over high yield. And credit spreads aren't really rewarding. You are exactly they? that. There's just not the premium. Over exactly there. that. Yeah. So I think um, you've been better compensated in the higher quality end of the credit spectrum mm. and just saying I'll take the highest yield just search for that extra basis point mm. and be damned with a risk I think you do need to be investing in a very much risk aware fashion right mm. now well, you're probably and if you're, sorry if you're and if you're a central banker I mean we talk you know we started big I think a lot of people started beginning of the year saying by the end of the year we'll, we would have seen rate cuts mm -hmm. and, and, and six months before that was you know early yeah. 23 we'd see rate cuts what if you're a central banker what what makes you you know, vote for a cut in rates. So look, I think the three dimensions you need to see, and they all relate to inflation, is what we talked about before. You need to see, number one, a substantial, number two, broad-based, number three, sustained moderation of inflation. So substantial, broad-based, sustained moderation. Mm. So whatever you think about the first two, how quickly is inflation going to come down? Is it going to be broad-based? Having been through this experience where inflation has been double digit in most regions, you say, look, we need to make sure that inflation expectations remain well anchored. Mm. And that probably means inflation staying close to 2% for several months. So the point at which central banks will reverse course and say, OK, we've got sufficient comfort now that inflation has been slayed, it's killed off. I think that's well into 2024. Mm. Uh, our assessment is, but barring any significant moderation in growth, so a deep recession, you're looking at rate cuts that don't begin until the kind of back end of, of next year. Um, and the point you were making about the market saying a rate cuts will begin in 2023, mm. I think that's a misreading, again, of that long and variable lags of monetary policy. Mm. Go back yeah. to you know monetary policy. We don't know if it has its peak impact after a year or after two years. There are the different views around that. 
the kind of neutral assumption is it takes about 18 months. Yes. So when did the Fed start hiking? The Fed started in March of last year. Mm -hmm. Where are we now? 18 months later. Mm -hmm. So it's only now that you begin to see the lagged impact of yeah. monetary tightening. So it's, you're only now beginning to see that feed through. Why would central banks at this moment in time reverse course? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think we're in a world in which near term we should be bracing for somewhat sticky inflation, somewhat weaker growth. Central banks that even confronted with that don't see it as a particular dilemma. They don't see it as a problem to have to choose between weak growth and high inflation. Unambiguously, they will say high inflation is where our focus is right now. Mm. And it's only as we go deep into next year that they begin to say, okay, now we think inflation is sustainably down. Now we can begin to think about taking rates lower in order to support economic activity. We'll have to see how that goes. If we um, just move on, I think before we finish, to talk a bit about equity markets, because that's obviously where the you know where the action is. Yeah. Um, this is an incredible chart. Uh, MSCI World since pre-pandemic, so January January 2020, you know, halcyon days. Remember those days? Um, and then we were all stuck that, at home for dollars. a few months. That's in dollars. dollars yeah. yeah. Um, equity market fell 30% <laughs> in five weeks. It was good. <laughs> um, rose almost as quickly and it, by the end of the year you know you made money in 2020 in yeah. equities which well, is just extraordinary yeah. remarkable yeah. and then 21 was was pretty mad very strong year and and since then really since December 21 effectively January 22 yeah. you know markets fell what 15% probably 15% in dollars more than that 20% perhaps yeah. and they've sort of like nearly 20, got yeah. back to that high water mark haven't they I mean I, I guess as an investor your mood would very much depend on your starting point here, absolutely right? So yeah. if you've been invested since pre-pandemic, you probably think, well, I've probably done all right over a five-year yeah. view. Mm -hmm. But if you'd invested in 2021 yeah. or already 2022, yeah. you're probably feeling a bit sorry for yourself. Absolutely right, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Which uh, I think is about having a... Look, we try and put on tactical adjustments to portfolios. Where do we see value? Where do we see dislocations and incorrect market pricing? But there's an element which just says stay invested for the long yeah. term. And that, that's easy advice to dispense. Mm. It's much harder to actually do in practice. I think from an equity perspective right now, you know, we were talking there about global equities. It's not a risk. Well, it's not a world of one trade. It's not risk on or risk off. It's thinking about which sectors or which geographies mm. do you think have value. I've already made the case for Japanese equities. You can make the case for India equities. What about UK equities? We're 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 a big we're a big fan of the uh, the DRL FTSE on this podcast, aren't we? Look, I, I think <laughs> we are indeed. <laughs> I think the UK has a number of challenges. Bring it back to the macro, and then we can think about the investment yeah. implications. It had a huge amount of stimulus during the dark days of COVID. And I don't mean this as a criticism of any policymaker. There was no playbook to go from. But if you look at the amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus that we had in the UK, it was at the, the end of the spectrum that was the most accommodative of any major developed market. So we have excess demand relative to supply. We had a massive energy price shock mm. um, of the kind that few mm. in Europe have seen. Our yeah. dependency on gas prices is much greater than most of the European economies. So we had the worst of the energy shock that Europe had, the worst of the demand shock that the US had. And sorry to bring it back to Brexit, but whether, the, whether you're a Brexit supporter or a Brexit opposer, Brexit economically has introduced some frictions yeah. into trading relationships, sandy, whether they're short-term in nature. Yeah. yeah. So you put those, those three dimensions together and you say, look, inflation in the UK is probably going to be somewhat stickier than perhaps most other economies, which is going to require the Bank of England to keep, keep rates somewhat higher. Yeah. Um, that, mm. I think, is going to be a bit of a challenge for UK PLC. Mm. Now, you can think about you know, UK equities are somewhat distinct from that, just 
given the international nature of yeah. the FTSE 100 and so on. But then if you dig into the sectors that you're looking at there, you're taking exposure to financials, you're taking exposure to energy companies. You've got to make almost a sector decision rather yeah. than a geographical decision. Is that the exposure you want to be running? When, when you're talking to sort of overseas institutional investors, do they, do they think about the composition of the FTSE or, or do they think about the macro around the UK and think the UK has its own is, issues? Is the UK even a conversation? Yeah. Oh, the UK is certainly part of the conversation. Canada is not the focal part of it. You know, kind of blank piece of paper. Most investors would say, we'll do this on a kind of market cap basis. So you start mm. talking about the US. Um, you probably get into kind of Europe and Japan before you come onto the UK. So it's part of the conversation. Mm. To answer your question about what nature is, it's a bit of both. You care yeah. about both the top down and the bottom up. I think for the most part, they say, look, macro matters, mm. but micro matters more. Yeah. So you've got to blend the two together, but it's more about the individual companies and the names than it is the macro, but it doesn't mean the macro becomes irrelevant. Mm. And, the, and do they think about, <clears throat> is the discussion around the valuation differentials? You know, if you, you talk yeah. about certain sectors, you know, the oils in the UK. Yeah. Trade cheaper. Do, are they thinking about that as well? Absolutely. The question then is, are those valuations justified? So mm. this thing, whatever it is, UK equities or price of a car might be cheaper mm. than that thing. Um, but is that value, are you getting more for your money? Is that valuation justified? Yeah. So um, valuations certainly an important part of the conversation but it's mm. never sufficient. You might say this is cheaper but is it cheaper mm. for a good reason? Because I do think sometimes you know, we have this home bias and, and you're naturally more aligned to where you sit and, and where you've been brought up. And I think, you know, sometimes maybe we think about the businesses in the UK as being potentially stronger than maybe they are viewed on a, on a global basis. I don't, th I don't think the UK is unique in that. You know, if we go speak to, pick a country, you know, Norwegian investors mm. or Japanese investors, they're going to have a natural affinity for companies and names that they're more familiar with. So that home country bias is inevitable. Mm. And therefore, mm. our message, if I was speaking to investors around the rest of the world, I would take kind of a, a neutral stance on the UK and say, here's the strengths, here are the weaknesses, here's what you need to be aware of. But for those of us sit here in the UK, almost all of us will have an inherent bias towards the yeah. UK. And so yeah. therefore you say, you probably want to diversify away from the UK anyway. Even mm. if you've got a really bullish view about the mm. UK, you probably excessively concentrate. You've probably got too yeah, much yeah. home country bias to start yeah. to look at other markets as a means of doing that. And just yeah. for the record, we've got a chart here of the, the regional breakdown of global equity markets since the pandemic over the same time frame with the, with the dear old UK in blue um, um, versus the US in red. Well, they weren't quite last. Emerging <laughs> markets takes, uh, takes the baton. But, you know, what's extraordinary, I always think about this chart, is if you look at the pandemic, the first pandemic period, 2020, where the UK basically went down 30 percent and stayed down versus the red line, how the US market just went on an absolute tear. Yeah. And if you think about what we were doing in the pandemic, we were buying stuff on Amazon, using our Apple phone, uh, in using Microsoft Teams for the first time, and mm -hmm. watching Netflix, which yeah. is all in that red line. Yeah. Um, we weren't consuming oil, and we weren't going to the yeah. bank. Um, but and the, TikTok you know, videos and TikTok, TikTok and AWS. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing you make, make a TikTok? Oh, a massive yeah. TikTok. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I can barely spell it. <laughs> but it's, um, uh, I just think it's really interesting. And, and in 2022 in particular, where you had the US, you know, the red line coming down sharply with yeah. those mega cap tech mm, in particular yeah. getting, or, or not mega cap tech, sorry, the speculative growth tech, you know, the Zooms and the Pelotons yeah, yeah. And, and getting, you know, royally blown up and, and BP yeah. and Shell carrying the FTSE to positive return in the year. It's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? I think this show is really interesting in that you've, you've walked through some of the key dimensions of that, but one key takeaway for me is to say, look, even in the darkest of days, and you go back to you know, early 2020 where we didn't know what the future looked like, nobody yeah. knew how COVID was going to play out. 
But actually, even with that massive challenge, there were some significant investment opportunities mm, to be were. had. Yeah. So I'm conscious that the conversation we've had to hear has been talking about demographics are a headwind, yeah. decarbonisation is yeah. a headwind. There's all these economic challenges that any socially engaged citizen would yeah. say, well, that's going to be difficult to get through. And I, I've not tried to pull our punches here. They, they, economically, it is going to be quite difficult. Yeah. But from an investment perspective, with every single one of these challenges comes an opportunity. It's just thinking about how do you express that? Is this the right moment to express that? Um, but for every challenge, there is, I think, some potential investment opportunity mm. associated with it. Well, I mean, if, we, you're, we, if you're a business which has a good balance sheet, hasn't got debt issues, yeah. and refinances on the short-term horizon, um, you know, you can, you can take market share if you've got loyal employees and it's well managed. It's, you know, you're going to come out at the end of this with with greater market share and then you're going to be set to really grow afterwards. Yeah. So that that's sort of how we're thinking about the equities mm. we're certainly investing in. Yeah. Um, and I think from a client's perspective, you've got a chart of um, valuation on the global mm. equity market going back 30 years and global equities trade at a modest discount to 30 year average. Exactly and right. that 30 year average encompasses the dot com boom. Mm. Um, where equities got to 25 times and the financial crisis bust where equities got down to 10 times yep. and we're at 14 and a half, 15 and investors, you know, I keep saying to clients we can now buy bonds at 5% and we can buy mm. equities at a discount of 30 average and we'll be fine yeah. mm. in the next 10, 5 to 10 years it's not, not so sure about the next 5 to 10 months but that's, yeah. that's by the by so there are plenty of opportunities I think the reality um, is we, just, we need to be comfortable with the idea that over, a, let's say, a 10 year time horizon the returns that we probably get from equities are not going to be as stellar as they have been during the 2020s because you don't have that same support from central banks. You don't have the same relative geopolitical tranquility. That's probably an excessive statement, but certainly yeah. the, the, the geopolitical uncertainties that we see now are far greater than we were back then. So let's let's recalibrate. Let's not be expecting that we get another annualised 13 15% returns from equities, but we're still looking at an environment where over a 10-year time period, Equities should be delivering quite attractive returns. Yeah, There's agree. nothing there that's inherently scary. Well, I, I think about it as your risk segment probably does less, but but your lower risk segment does more. Yeah, exactly. So and and there was you know the amount of articles written, you know, a number death of years of ago, death of the sixty forty, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, I mean, look, at the moment, bonds and equities are too correlated, and and I think you know it'd be interesting to know your view, but I think that does start to separate actually and, and change again but as JR said from a starting point with a client that's sort of medium risk let's you know 40 percent you know let's say 20 to 30 in really good um, government securities you can have good quality investment grade and then you can have your global equities I mean that's a pretty good starting point yeah. from today with where rates are yeah so on the correlations piece we, we think mm. you stay in this world of positive stock bond correlations in the short term and then mm. it begins to normalize so don't expect any dramatic reversal imminently mm. but you go back to a more familiar world and on the 60 40 piece look you know our long-term capital market assumptions as I've just argued suggest that the returns from equities will be a little bit lower mm. The returns from fixed income will be a little bit higher. So maybe we tilt slightly away from 60-40, you reallocate some equity exposure Mm. to fixed income. But it is at the margin. There's no kind of revolution or transformation here. It's some modest adjustments to a framework that you might want to think of what goes into each of those buckets. What kind of fixed income? What kind of equity? Is it growth? Is it value? Is it EM? Is it DM? But fundamentally, 60-40 is the starting point. It's still probably the place to begin the mm. conversation. Mm. 
Yeah. I think, I think in lots of ways it's a healthier environment to start from. I mean, it goes back to how, you know, when we first started our careers, what we were trained in and, and how portfolios were built. And you had this mad period of yeah. actually the 40, you sort of, you know, <laughs> it wasn't really doing anything. It, yeah. it was really hard. Yeah, I mean, go back, you know, the world we've been in, take it to, you know, European government bonds, just to use that as a kind of outstanding example. If you go back a couple of years, German government bonds were trading at minus 1% yields, mm. and now they're kind of closer to 3%. Minus 1%, there's not much value there, right? No. So the, the reset to these higher yields has been very difficult from a portfolio perspective. Yeah. But you say, okay, that's now water under the bridge. Am I happier buying a German bond at three than I was at minus one? You better believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Am I happier buying you know, a US 10-year bond at 5% than I was at 1% a few years ago? You yeah. better believe I am. So fixed income has been a challenging space for a couple of years. Let's make you know, no bones about yeah. that. But right now, I think there is better value than there has been for quite some considerable time in that Most space. Most of my career, definitely. Yeah. Mm. I think uh, I think on that reasonably positive note, James, I think we'll we'll leave that there. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much for your time and uh, for mm. your thoughts. Great pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks guys. James. Cheers. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, any questions or feedback, then do get in touch. Uh, he's james.hughes at quarterchiever.com. I'm jonathan.raymond uh, at quarterchiever.com. And we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.